Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time podcast presented exclusively by the Chop Sports Channel, the premier streaming network. We are recording this on Monday, February 27th. I am your host, Laurent Cortines. In this episode, Manchester United win their first trophy under Ten Hag. Chelsea continue to sputter and the Liverpool revolution reaches the terror portion. But first, football, media, the idea of money, winning, and all the rest of it. I want to get to that. But first, house cleaning. If you're new to the show, my name's Laurent Cortines. I record this show regularly. Please like, subscribe, and share the show. It means everything to us. If you like, we're on social media, we're on YouTube, we're on WhatsApp, wherever you find the show, please, please, please like, share, and subscribe now. Let's get to it. Okay. Um, the football this weekend, I didn't really love. I thought it was a little bit weak and a little bit uh, odd. And I, and I wanted to take a little bit of a moment here to just discuss some of the some of the weird stuff that goes on with football in terms of money and who's allowed to win, The really the politics of glory. I think this weekend with the EFL Cup final of Newcastle and Manchester United, we have two ends of the spectrum. We have the venerable Manchester United earning its trophy, made money because it got big in a moment uh, in the 60s with um, George Best in color. You have winning the European Cup in 1968. You have Manchester, the home of football, and then you have Liverpool. And this is the arist an aristocratic club within football. And however they make their money, they're allowed to. Uh, the, way the way United are dealt with is different than other clubs. They are grandfathered in, if you will. Um, regardless, there is a sense of ickiness under the Glazers, not because not because they're bad or United are ill-begotten, but because they take profit from the team. There is a constant struggle within this term called modern football of commerce for commerce's sake of football being a commercial enterprise designed to make money. It is not a great business. Uh, you can find this out in a million places, but it is a good business in terms of its power, its meaning and what it does, right? Like for an owner, you're not investing in Manchester United to get rich, but you're investing in Manchester United to get favor and power within its ecosystem of being, I own Manchester United. If you're doing it for the money, you're a fool. So you have Manchester United on one side and you have Newcastle on the other, a club that is large within the context of England because of where it is. It's isolated in the Northeast. And when it came to prominence and football came to prominence, it was the only big club in the north when the league began and it has it holds a place in people's hearts around what it means and what it is so newcastle and united represent these two sides of football and now newcastle has now been bought by the sovereign wealth fund of saudi arabia the pif i'm not sure what that stands for 
but we have this conflict. And one of the things that I think about is like, who's allowed to be rich? Who's allowed to be wealthy? Who's allowed to partake in the power of football? There's a constant struggle and it's different in every country around what is an okay way to win and who's allowed to get money and who's not allowed to get money and whether yours are ill-begotten or ours are ill-begotten. And then there's this concept of modern football, which is essentially the idea of commercialism versus pre-modern pre football or traditional football, where it's for the working class and it's about your old stadium, dad, smoke, piss, beer, no women, violence. I don't know when this period of pre-modern football is better. I'm not sure. Uh, I guess as an American coming into it, for the for the folks who are out of the UK, especially the fan hub folks, how do you reconcile these two pieces of football, the, the commerce mixed with the tradition? And, and how do you square the idea of glory, meaning you need to spend money and win and buy players for the positions that are weak? And where does that money come from? And the idea of, oh, my owner is this sovereign wealth fund or billionaire who maybe is a hedge fund manager or is a leverage buyout guy who destroys companies, puts them back together, sells them on so he can buy a football club. Like, why is one version of capitalism less worse than the other one? Now, I'm wearing this as a city hat. I'm wearing this as an American with a Keith Haring shirt. All these things all add up together, but I, I'm so fascinated by it. And I wonder what it all means, especially in the context of this amazing game that just happened that will go to right now. So love to hear everyone's thoughts about um, their feeling about wealth and money and football and what it all means. It's all so bizarre how you get different feelings about it. So anyway, let us go to the actual EFL Cup uh, trophy uh, event, a great event for the Newcastle fans who got to see their club in a final, which is great. Uh, Newcastle hadn't, have only been, I think, in, in five finals in 60 years, and they get a day out in Wembley. The numbers are out. There were about 120,000 people who came from the Northeast or at least are of Geordie descent. I don't know how that works. You know, England is so regional. There's an actual accent for the people from that city, and they're called Geordies. Um, interesting. I don't know what it means. And um, this game started out okay for Newcastle. They looked good. Uh, Loris Karius was not a problem. That was the first narrative that came through, which was, oh, can uh, Karius bounce back after two years, the problems he had in the Champions League final in 2017-18 when he got concussed by Sergio Ramos and then stayed in the game and, of course, gave up goals. Uh, early on in this game, I thought it was pretty even for the first five to ten minutes. Looked like, you know, both teams are in it. And then on the half-hour mark, on an amazing cross by Shaw, I will say Bruno Gamerish giving him the foul outside the box to Shaw was a bit of it like, yo, dude, what are you doing? That's dangerous. And boom, there's the cross from Shaw onto Casemiro's head. It could only be Casemiro, who's been the catalyst for United season. And then five minutes later, a few minutes later, um, Rashford scored as well. 
assisted by Veghorst, which was nice. It was nice to see Veghorst. He's kind of this weird mascot of the team now uh, for City, for United. And really, once it was 2-0, it really was over. Uh, second half, Newcastle really didn't do much. And we now have this new sort of defensive triangle of De Gea, Lissandra Martinez, Varane, and Casemiro, who just stop everything at source at this point, where this was such a controlled performance by United. And I'll ask United fans, have you seen this before? I mean, United have historically, especially um, over the last few years, and while they're in the wilderness, been unable to control games. And this game was controlled. Uh, I think Ten Hag really showed, you know what? I want to win this game. I'm not messing about. Took out Dallow at halftime. On comes Wambasaka. Sabitzer for Fred. McTominay for Veghorst on 70. So it's like, we're not messing around. We're going for the win. Uh, Isaac came on for Longstaff. For, for Newcastle, I mean, Callum Wilson really did nothing. You know, it just wasn't there for them. But I think this is more about United, more about Ten Hag. He's just a good fucking coach. And I hate it because United are, they're there. They've got the juice. The machine is rolling. They've guys who were in the wilderness are now back. Like Wambasaka was out of this club and he's back. I thought losing Erickson would be a catastrophe, but no, Fred's in there with, with Casemiro playing the role. And they've changed the way they play. They have a they have ways to play now. They have an offensive group with Dallow. They've unlocked Shaw, who, by the way, side note, Jose Mourinho, you are a fucking asshole. Luke Shaw has been, if not the best defender both ways, attacking and defending fullback that United has had for at least five or six years. He's an incredible player. He's been great. And uh, he played center back for you guys like, Give respect to Luke Shaw, been a great United player, and now he has his first trophy. So I, as much as I, as a City fan, I want United to burn it to the ground. I am also can take my City hat off and go, for a lot of guys that have made the commitment to United and had it been really bad under Mourinho and under uh, Rangnick and under Ole and all these coaches that have come in and lost seasons. You know, I think of Fred and De Gea, who's been here a long time. Fernandez, who was like, what am I coming into? Rashford, who's come up with the team. Dallow, who's been here for a while. Luke Shaw, Lindelof, these guys, Maguire, just taking so much shit for all of them to be able to have their first trophy. I think it's, it's, it's nice. You could see there was a relief. There was a joy that came through United and and that's fair play to them and, and good for them. And, you know, I'm not a fucking complete sociopathic asshole. You know, they deserved it. They won. For the Newcastle side, this is all gravy. I think that they're a year early. Um, it seems like they're pressing and attacking ways of getting turnovers and turning teams over and scoring that way. And their impregnable defense is kind of missing when it doesn't have Pope. Um, the goal from Rashford was on a deflection by Shaw or Botman. I'm not sure uh, that went over court carious. So he wasn't at fault. It was just kind of flicked over. Trippier was fantastic. Dan Byrne was fantastic. Their, their group was fantastic. They're just not able to, to find another gear, right? They've, 
done as good as they can. They've pushed themselves into a final for Newcastle. This is the beginning. Um, they haven't done the splashy Rabinho buy. They've spent the bunch. Isak was a big spin, but they're not really ready for these moments yet. Um, the one thing I really love about football is you've got to suffer. And this is the first moment that Newcastle are suffering uh, in terms of this new group. Like the fans have suffered under Mike Ashley. I understand that. And that's why there was such exuberance. One of the great things was the, the Jordy is just not leaving. They're down to nothing. They're not creating anything. Martinez, Varane, and Casemiro are snuffing out everything that they bring. And the Geordies stayed till the end. They've got the 300, 400 mile trip back home. And they cheered their team until the end. And so no one can begrudge uh, Newcastle for this moment. Uh, they just need another shot. And they're going to start rolling the dice, right? Every year, there's going to be three trophies that are up for grabs, if not four, one in Europe and three league. Two, two cup competitions in the league, uh, four trophies for 20 teams uh, in England every year. Well, I mean, technically the FA Cup and the AFL Cup can go to more teams, but uh, 20 teams competing for those trophies. And I think Newcastle will be one of them. And so this is a first step. Nice for Eddie Howe. He'd never been in a final. I mean, yes, he'd, he'd won promotion in lower divisions, but he hasn't won anything before. So this is a big moment for him. And uh, I'm happy for them. And I really enjoyed that. Um, so that's our first trophy of the year. Of course, narrative is now New Ca uh, United on for a treble. But hold your fucking horses, United. You're not winning a treble. You're not winning the league. You could win the Europa League. You might win the FA Cup. Take it easy. <laughs> You're not winning the league. You're not doing anything of the sort. Um, United will will put this in their pocket and and let. Hopefully, they kick on. This is very reminiscent of Mourinho whose first season in the league won the, won the EFL Cup, and Pep, whose first season in the league, he won the EFL Cup. It's this new thing when you're a foreign manager uh, in charge of a big team to win because it's there and no other country has it. It's a weird thing that only only England has, so bizarre. Um, so we move on to the actual football league, and we have to go to the sorry state <laughs> of uh of chelsea i mean i don't even know what to say anymore this game was just brutal and boring and didn't really have much going for it uh more from chelsea still havertz raheem sterling back in the side ziich who was supposed to be sold felix and his karate kid haircut along with loftus cheek and Ruben fernandez Koulibaly came back in. He's been terrible. I don't even know why he plays. Silva started and went off along with Reese James and Brent Chilwell, which you'd expect something to be created along with Kepa. Still not much coming from Chelsea. First half, pretty even. Um, Chelsea had the first three shots. Kane didn't, uh, only one on target in the first half. But Chelsea had four shots to Tottenham's three. They had a little bit more of the value of those shots. So Felix, Jao Felix probably had the best chance on a ball over the top from, um, from, from Kai Havertz, who laid it off to him. So not much there. So first half, very normal, very spursy. Uh, the only talking point really was the, um, the sort of fight late in the second half. 
there was some confusion uh, late in the second half. Ty ha- Hakeem Ziyech hacks down Richarlison. Richarlison pops, sorry, Havertz hacks down Richarlison. Ziyech is up in his face. Richarlison pops up, pushes Ziyech. There's a card shown to Havertz. Then there's a little bit of a kerfuffle. Emerson Royale comes and barges Ziyech in the back. And then Ziyech mushes him in the face neck. The Ziyech hand to the face of Royale gets him a straight red after some review, after some fighting. The thing that was weird was you couldn't tell if Ziyech had gotten a yellow and then it got changed to a red. So he had gotten nothing. The Havertz had gotten the yellow. And then they repealed Ziyech's red for yellow. It was a hand to a face. It was a little bit tricky. You've seen them given uh, on the call. Um, Graham Lasso was just like, this has to be a straight red. It was a hand to a face. It's a red. Okay, whatever. Chelsea get away with it. They should feel happy that they got away with it. Uh, they go in at halftime, nil-nil. No problem. Ho-ho, come out. Let's go play. That's not what happens. Spurs, one of the better second-half teams in the league. I believe they're minus six in the first half, plus 14 in the second. So, nerds, get your nerd ruler out. We're going to start talking to XG. Uh, the XG for this game was really low. Uh, on, a, on a bad clearance, on a shot, sorry. So, the goal comes from Skip. It's on a shot. Um by Emerson that's saved, that bounces around. Fernandez clears it towards, sorry, Kepa doesn't grab it. He saves it and it kind of dribbles off him. Fernandez, thinking he's helping him out, clears it, but he clears it directly to Jao Felix, who doesn't come up with it. And then it's passed into Skip and he smashes it home for a really good goal, but just a point. 02 XG goal. So not one you'd expect. Kepa got his hand on it, then not so much. And then late in the game, um, on 82, Harry Kane finishes off Chelsea. Now, what are Chelsea doing? Chelsea don't create anything. Chelsea don't create anything. They just don't. They just don't create enough good chances. And that's why... Whenever you hear someone say, and it's really annoying, they need a striker, they need a striker, they need a striker. No, they don't. They have all the strikers in the world. They have guys who can finish. They're all over the place. They're no different than what City were without Aguero, okay? They have as good players, okay? They don't create enough out of the midfield. None of those players plays balls in behind. None. That's been Chelsea's problem for three years. They never replaced the creativity that Hazard gave them on the wing. Hazard was a one-man destructive crew. Yes, I know they won the Champions League. They won that Champions League by hook or by crook, by people contributing. But in terms of a regular offensive creator who made things go, they were getting it by committee. They do not have that player 
who can create opportunities all the time. I think under Tuchel, it looked like Reese James, and then you'd see it from Chilwell, but they've been unreliable, and the team has not been reliably able to create enough opportunities for their less-than-ideal plus-XG strikers. When I say plus-XG strikers, I mean they score more than they would than you would expect. They don't have anything that they'd score more than you would expect. Right now, Chelsea are way in a negative. In the last 14 games, they've generated, I believe the number is 17 expected goals and only scored six. That is bad. Either they're not getting good opportunities or they're not getting enough opportunities. And the ones they are getting, they're pressing and not scoring. So Chelsea have not scored at all. They are awful. They've scored six goals in their last 14 games. Something crazy number like that. And that's on Graham Potter. Um, You guys know how I feel about him. I've been covering this over and over again. Potter, he's not doing enough. He's not doing enough. Uh, I was listening to the Totally Football show and... um, Sasha Gurionov, a writer for The Guardian, um, Polish guy, but lives in England. He said something to the effect of, Potter is a normal, nice guy. And Chelsea can't have normal managers. It's not a club for a normal person. You've got to be a little crazy, a little irrational, and a little bit weird to be the modern Chelsea manager. By modern, I mean since 2003. Right. First, you had Ranieri. Let's even go further back. The Renaissance comes under Gianluca Vialli, a larger than life personality. Then you have Hullet, who's also a larger than life personality. Then you go on to, um, you go on to Ranieri, who's got a little bit bada bing bada boom personality. Then it's on to Mourinho and Hudink and Avram Grant and Ancelotti and all these people that are bigger than life personalities, especially Mourinho, especially Tuchel, especially Conte. These are irrational people, madmen, uh, people who believe and are irrational. They're not normal. And I think Potter is more of a traditional British bureaucrat. He's Tut, tut, we follow the directions. We have the manual. We've written it up. This is how we're going to play. And I don't think that that works at Chelsea. That might be the problem. It might be that he doesn't have enough oomph behind his words and the team is not responding to it. Again, this is one of these things that I really love about English football and football in general is the institutions hold knowledge. You can't be a Real Madrid manager without cojones. You know, Manchester United, there is a united way that no one can describe, but there is a way, right? And somehow um, Ole was doing it, Mourinho wasn't, Conte isn't right for United, but Ten Hag is. I don't know what it means, but apparently Gary Neville can tell me, but I got it when he was saying it. So Chelsea have a way, and I don't think Graham Potter is that way yet. He may be there long enough to change the institution, but I think right now Chelsea's institutional juice is firing managers, defensive first, and really about results. And he's not giving delivering that. Uh, I will. I don't want to give shirt shift to Spurs. This is a big London derby. 
This is a big deal for Spurs. They have a tremendously hard time against Chelsea historically. Um, although they have won, actually Chelsea have won the last three, four. Chelsea have dominated, <laughs> have dominated this uh, thing. Chelsea had won the, until this this until this last one. Chelsea had won one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine in a row with a draw. So the last 11 matches, uh, Chelsea had been nine, one, and one. Not great. So the last time Chelsea, the last time Spurs beat Chelsea in the league was 2018. And I'm sure uh, Mike would know exactly. <laughs> exactly uh which which day that was and where it was and how it happened so what an amazing amazing feat for spurs a big day for them to win and get the victory uh this is about harry kane standing alone in goals for the club um you know the same stuff son coming off the bench um the coach what's his name i'm gonna get it here not Antonio Conte, but his <laughs> his understudy is driving the team forward. I think they're getting weirdly like a new manager bounce without changing their manager. So they've won three or four on a trot and are playing well. And, uh, you know, they're in the top four fight because I think Spurs is slipping and there's a little bit of a gap between them. And so um, we see what happens there. We move on to the revolution that is not in its best period uh, Liverpool draw nil nil at Patrick Vieira's uh, Crystal Palace. What a terrible game this was! Just boring shit football. I mean, just not great. Not great. Not much to talk about here. I think the interesting thing was Klopp just going Milner, Henderson, Keita in the midfield. The back four was the was the traditional Klopp back four with um, TAA, Matip, Van Dyke, and Robertson. But up front, it was Gakpo and Salah and Jota. So everything was normal except the midfield. It was like a, let's not have any creativity in this midfield and not really even have the legs. So it didn't get anything out of the first half. Really not much going on. Uh, still some mistakes here and there. Uh, Salah took the first shot of the game and they did create most of the uh, initial items. There was one Mateta was really close, hit the bar, uh, had a couple shots off the woodwork, especially late in the first half on a turnover by Trent Alexander-Arnold. There was never really a moment here for, um, for Liverpool, a couple half chances here or there. Vieira was really happy with this draw. Nil nil. The revolution is now in the terror period for uh Klopp and Liverpool. They just have to accept that this is where they are. Um, you know, after the five five two against Real Madrid, you'd hope there was a bigger reaction, but there wasn't. And I think, you know, Manny and BJ and the and and Alex and the rest of the Liverpool boys, you're just gonna have to accept that this is where your team is. This was a mid-table, drab, nil-nil draw. And I'm not sure where Liverpool goes from here. I think it's really about consolidation, making sure you know who's who, and accepting that 
some version of Liverpool doesn't exist anymore and is gone. And now you have a new one Um, on the palace side. You know, they're still sputtering. They haven't won a game. And I mean, it feels like ages at this point for uh, crystal palace. Let me just look the last time they won a game. Crystal palace was, I don't think they've won this year yet. So I'm just going to checking right now, clicking through. You're hearing me click. <laughs> uh, we'll get to it in a second. Uh, come on, give me my information. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they haven't won this year. They're on like five draws in a row or something ridiculous like that for Palace. And I think that they miss they missed the drive of of Gallagher, who's now I think been found out a little bit at Chelsea. He just kind of is a runner. Um, but they still need a striker. They still don't have Zaha. They're not really finding. Oh, I had I had clicked it. Yeah. So yeah, their last win literally was on New Year's Eve, two nil away to Bournemouth. Then they lost three in a row, and they have drawn one, two, three, four, five of their last six. So they're picking up points. They're not getting in the relegation zone, but just remember. Three draws equals one win. I know that sounds stupid, but I think I would have rather had two wins and four losses than these five draws. I know that sounds crazy, but the points are more valuable. You want to take, get your sabermetrics here? A draw is only worth one. A win is worth three. Don't play for draws. Go for the win. <laughs> so maybe maybe Vieira's thinking about the Invincibles, how they drew their way to immortality, but... That team drew 14 times. Maybe the uh, maybe Vieira took a little bit of that from uh, his boy uh, Wenger. And he's just like, well, I haven't lost. We haven't won either. So let's go get a win. Uh, they're just not scoring. They haven't had Zaha. I still like them. I still like their crowd. I still love Vieira being um, a Caribbean Frenchman. And his team is all players of African descent. I just... It just goes to show the value of representation, right? Like if you have more African descent managers, you're going to have more African players in your league. Just makes sense. People pick people who they look like. Uh, I love it. It makes me so happy that that team represents its neighborhood because um, uh, Croydon is an immigrant area, uh, an African descent area in South, South London. It's not really London. Croydon's a little bit outside of the bounds but still cool i still love it i think it's so cool whenever i see it and then i think of anderson jackie manderson just being back there him and goita just being like yo we're with the boys we're making it happen <laughs> uh but yeah palace can you just get a win please um on to the top of the league both arsenal and um manchester city arsenal's game was a 1-0 against Leicester, and they controlled this game from end to end. Just, they gave up nothing. And I say nothing. The XG was zero for Leicester. They had one shot and it wasn't on target. They just couldn't create anything. And Arsenal just completely controlled this game. They get a goal in the second half from Martinelli. Good stuff. They had a goal disallowed. Trossard plays false nine otherwise everything is the same just knowing Ketia Trossard playing uh in the false nine I mean Ketia comes on later but yeah this was an easy game for Arsenal controlled professional strong 
not a problem. They got their goal. They got to sing one nil to the Arsenal. And I mean, when I say that Leicester were abject, they were abject. Only one shot creating action the whole game. Just nothing. They had one shot from Dewsbury Hall. That was it. So, I mean, not a great game to watch. Uh, And that shot came from Dewsbury Hall on the 72nd minute. And then there wasn't another shot in the game from 72 on. So Arsenal just bossed this game. They check another box. For Arsenal, where they are now is every week that they can tick over the schedule becomes less and less points for other teams to catch up to them. So they look like champions. They had their blip. City had their shot and lost that stupid game that we lost, uh, the 1-0. And that's just where it is right now. Uh, Chelsea, I mean, sorry, Manchester City will have to take this title from Arsenal, still staying five points behind, um, still working their way around. Uh, For Leicester, I do have to say, it's not a shock that James Madison didn't play. When James Madison doesn't play, Leicester don't win. They don't create anything. They have nothing. Uh, I'm not sure if that's an indictment on Brendan Rodgers or whatever, but uh, it's pretty sad to see Leicester, a team that I think most of us had some juice into, just kind of sputter and kind of float through games. This was a really bad home performance. Anyone who's a Fox fan should be fucking angry. This is at home, at the King Power. You do nothing. That stadium used to be loud and weird and have the clappers, and now they have the clap. Now, respect to Arsenal. They get where they need to go. Uh, My boys play against Bournemouth. Manchester City just kill. (laughs) They just kill Bournemouth. Uh, I had been talking a lot of positivity about Gary O'Neill, but this this was pathetic. Uh, City just go in there. Alvarez on 15, Holland on 29, Foden on 45, and then an own goal uh, by Mepham. Um, Just really bad. Uh, There was no fight. There was no energy. This game was flat. The second half was laughable, although Bournemouth did get a goal, but that was only after City basically pulled all their players uh, on 60 Phillips, sorry, Phillips came in on 55. Sergio Gomez for Ilkay Gundogan. Basically, they called off the dogs. And uh, from there, you know, it just was kind of normal. I mean, we even had a Maximo Peron uh, citing the 17-year-old from Argentina. <laughs> uh, sorry, he's 20. This is his first appearance for Manchester City at 19 years old. He was playing earlier this year in Argentina. And so he gets some burn <laughs> for City just out of the blue. So yes, they do get a goal. Um and that'll be the only downside to this was Bournemouth getting a goal and City not getting a clean sheet. But this is nice for City to get extra goals, to do some damage, to um you know, really be where they are. The other one to call out Phil Foden was fantastic in this game, a goal and an assist. Uh, 11 shot creating actions, just terrorizing. And it's good for City to have more players rounding into form. City are at their best when they are relentless. When one group of players starts, 
they're not there. Another one comes on and changes the game. And uh, that is when they are most dangerous, right? When it's not just waiting for De Bruyne, but there's a constant chain of there's no breathing. You're under the cosh and under attack all the time and City aren't slow. So having Foden and Grealish and Mares and all of the winger combinations getting together and Alvarez scoring goals just gets the, the machine going again. And so hopefully City have played well over the last three games. Uh, two of them were draws uh, and then one one win here. So the, the Nottingham Forest game, Nottingham were battered. Uh, the, the, the Red Bull game, City completely dominated the first half, just weren't able to finish chances. Second half, they tired. And I, you know, I talked about it the last show, but then in this one, the goals went in. So the shots went in and that's what happens with City. They are always, they, they always have the same process and it looks bad when the shots don't go in. Uh, but when the shots go in, all of a sudden they've still created 10 shots, five on target and just uh, brush Bournemouth aside. Uh, for Bournemouth, you know, these games, City can be got at. And if you play this passive and you lose, you kind of feel like a dick for not trying harder. So they went 5-4-1, never really came out, never really tried. Um, I mean, I guess for Bournemouth, these aren't the games that they're going to try and stay up to win. But it's disappointing to see Bournemouth be this bad and this poor in this game. Uh, I still think they're in the relegation zone. Um seriously and for city we're still there still ticking points forward so you know we've got to get our machine going for the destruction of uh of of arsenal uh this is a moment though arsenal do play their game in hand on wednesday against everton they lost this game in the reverse fixture but now this is at the emirates everton coming off a poor result we're going to go through the relegation battle uh Everton lose to um Aston Villa. They don't really do much. Really nice goal from Emmy Bendia late. Ollie Watkins converts a penalty that uh Idrisa Ganagay takes down McGinn. Um Onana had a really good chance early, hit it off right off Martinez. So, you know, they're still looking for goals, um, Everton. They just don't have any in the side. My friend and your uh, be careful of your wives friend, Mr. Uh, Neil Mope, just has not scored one goal all year. Uh, just doesn't do enough for this team. Dwight McNeil kept trying to create shots. Uh, Neil Mope took a bunch. McNeil created eight, took two. Onana, Ducora, everyone tried, but they just don't have enough oomph again up front to get those goals. They're trying to get that one goal uh, Everton, and then they'll lock it down. But in this case, Watkins on 63 converts the penalty, and then Buendia on a hammer shot from McGinn um, gets it done. And, you know, the Unai Emery revolution, we knew it. We knew it was going to happen. Aston Villa tick on, move on. They're getting some consistency of the lineup. Konza, Mings, Cash. They get McGinn back. Luca Dean is back. You know, they have Watkins on five games in a row, setting the record for Aston Villa goals scored in consecutive games, five in a row. We've always liked Watkins. He's a hard worker. He's a good striker. I think before Jesus went to Arsenal, I thought that Watkins might be the player that they go after, but maybe he's not top six quality. 
but uh, I really like Watkins. He's in that, he's in that um, Callum Wilson, Watkins, uh, uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. These are professional Premier League level scorers, but just not quite Champions League level scorers. So uh, maybe on good teams, they can show up, but Aston Villa get it done. And then um, uh, the Tricky Trees, our friends from Forest, have one of their really their shittiest second halves. <laughs> uh, second half, this game is cruising along, looks very West Hammy. West Ham are attacking and look good, and they're hanging in there. First half, nothing really goes on, pretty quiet. Um, I mean, it's mostly uh, West Ham, but then in the second half, I mean, Danny Ings had a really good chance in the first half, but off target on a on a point three shot just seemed to scuff it. But then second half, the floodgates open and, and we find Old Forest, Ings on seventy, Ings on seventy three, Rice on sixty eight. And then Mikel Antonio to finish it off on 85. They just put four past Forrest. One, two, three, four. All late in the second half. Forrest just had no answer. They still can't score on the road. They still can't win on the road. Forrest on the road, away from home, are just not the same. And uh, David Moyes was genuinely pleased. I think he really was on the schneid and really in trouble. It doesn't make any sense. I keep telling you, this West Ham team is too good to go down. They're too good to go down. What they need to do is attack. Uh, this defensive mindset that they have doesn't suit them. They're too good to be this bad. Uh, Bowen really pulling the strings in this game, creating the most shots on the team of the front players, but they're getting it from everywhere. Paqueta and Bowen both creating chances along with Declan Rice uh, just feels like they may have gotten off the schneid and maybe West Ham can start putting things together and getting out of the relegation zone. Our other friends in the relegation zone, uh, Leeds and Javi Garcia, Take on Southampton at home. Get the win. Thank God. Leeds needed this badly. Off a corner, uh, Junior Furpo just glides in. And then my friend, Mr. Bazuna, just completely misses the save. This is why they're going down. Bazuna misses a fucking save that he should have saved, and he completely doesn't. Uh, this was up and down all over the place, but Bazuna just really yaks the shot. Uh, that Firpo puts in his first goal in the Premier League. Uh, he's over the moon. But the thing that was different about this was once um, once Leeds got their goal, they shut it down. <laughs> they took Bamford off. They brought Raka on. They took, uh, you know, they, they really shifted it out and tried to see the game out and didn't fuck about trying to find more goals. They sat deep. They knew that, that Southampton couldn't really create anymore. And once they got their goal, they basically stopped attacking and we're like, okay, we got this. We're done. Let's see this thing out. Uh, they And then Southampton didn't create anything. Uh, so they get their bump, Southampton, but then they lose uh, again. Ruben Sellis is now permanent manager of Southampton. Had a weird interview in the end. I don't know where we want to go with that. All right. This was a weird schedule, not a normal schedule because um, – of the league cup final and we missed some games so just to recap there were only a handful of games Leeds defeat southampton west ham defeat forest 4-0 everton lose at home to villa uh nil two uh lester gets destroyed by arsenal one nil by doing nothing then city go to south go to bournemouth win 4-1 palace nil nil holding the revolution to its terrible period and then tottenham get their first win in 10 
against Chelsea 2-0. But we have upcoming matches. Wowie wow. Arsenal on Wednesday at home play Everton. That's a makeup game. If they win that game, they will go five points clear. They currently have a two-point lead on Manchester City with a game in hand. And Liverpool go to, sorry, Wolves come to Liverpool. This last time they met, Wolves won 3-0. This, that was a terrible performance by Liverpool. Um, they've These are the games, if they want to finish in the top four, Liverpool must, must defeat Wolves at home. Must. Anything less than three points is a cat- is catastrophic. Uh, and then we go into the rest of the week. I believe that that's all I have. And I will end the show. That was the Squeaky Bum Time Podcast with your host, Laurent Cortines. We are the football wing of the Chop Sports Channel and presented exclusively by the Premier Streaming Network. We record on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're listening on Apple, please rate and review the show. It means everything to us. Thank you.